Welcome to Jack Theology. My name is Dr. Matt Murphy, and I'm with my friend, Dr. Kevin Young. It's good to be back with you, Matt. Here we, here we go again, a new year, 2023. It's been great. A little bit of a break for the holiday season. Uh, before we get into to some of that, I uh, just want to remind you guys, uh, many of you have been joining us recently, uh, so we thank you for joining us. But if you could subscribe, like, share, comment, all those things to help us get the word out and help our algorithm. That would be great. Um, but thank you. We've received a lot of feedback, um, a lot of interaction through this podcast already in just a few short months. So it's been exciting and, and great just to dialogue with different people um, that are on the same journey we are. Yeah, it has been. I have. <laughs> I thought the benefit was going to be just being able to, to talk with you and kind of go more long form on stuff that you can't go long form about online. But you're right. One of the kind of surprise benefits to me has been kind of the community and the, the feedback and the conversations with other folks. And uh, we appreciate that. Yeah. And, and before we dive in, I just want to uh, send our condolences to, to Karen Russo's family, one of our actually biggest supporters from the early, early on from the beginning. Uh, she was, she, if she was still with us today, she'd probably be watching live um, and interacting. And so we're going to miss you, Karen. Um, you know, she's actually, actually didn't live too far from where I'm at. Actually, uh, we have some, she attended a church, uh, not too far from me. Um, so I may try, I don't know if it can fit in my schedule, but I may try to get down and to the viewing just to pay my respects. But, um, yeah, we're gonna miss you, Karen. Yeah. It's, um, (laughs) it's, it's in a lot of shockwaves, I think through, um, through the community, especially the community of people who, who might call themselves um, deconstructors and uh yeah yeah karen i think had a had a much larger voice in that community and presence than i think probably she may have known that she had which is uh yeah which is really really kind of awesome she was a very positive spirit a very encouraging spirit you know when you step out in these in this way like we're doing very publicly um, it can be difficult. We can really receive a lot of pushback. So it's always nice to, to have an encouraging ear and uh, encouraging voice um, and, lis- and listening ear. And so she was definitely that for every for everybody in this world. And, and, and we all appreciate her. So we're going to miss you, Karen. Thank you for your impact. Um, so, yeah. So as we head to the new year, before we get into the topic for t- today and um, – uh, just talk about you and I both. We we kind of set goals and resolutions, and I guess the more popular word these days is intentions. Intentions so it gives you room to fail. That sounds very Catholic. I like that. <laughs> well, I'm intending to do this this year, so yeah. if I don't do it, well, I still intended to do it, so it gives me an out, um, which is probably a healthy way to look at it, so you don't beat yourself up, but. Um, Another way to look at it is I try to make actual attainable goals, uh, so they're they're some easier wins. Um, so, what are some of those uh, for for us? What, what are you looking at this year, twenty twenty three? Yeah, well, I, I, what the, the the top three resolutions I think at New Year's are always health and fitness related, and uh, probably my top one is that in that uh, I want to cut out the weight. That, uh, that I put on over the holidays, or as I like to call the holidays, bulking season. 
so that is uh, that's a that's a goal uh you know be able to see be able to see the abs again you know selfish uh you know earthly earthly goals all these things you know shall pass away so if i'm storing up treasures in on earth then uh physical ones are, are probably it um spiritual you know treasures in heaven um you know, I think continue to grow, obviously, obviously, I think in my faith, but, um, you know, I, I think you bringing up Karen reminded me that there is this kind of growing community of people who don't seem to fit in a lot of the old structures and, and systems, I think, for for the church and religion. And I think, you know, one of my hopes, one of my goals for this year is to um, to, to invest myself more heavily in that community, um, you know, both to give to others out of, out of what I've been given, but also, you know, to receive, it can be, it can be lonely in a lot of ways. Uh, I think whenever you start asking questions of the church and encouraging, um, encouraging religious communities to be more accepting, to be more loving, um, to be more Christ-like, that can challenge systems in ways that um, are not well liked. And so, you know, I, I think my, my hope this year is to, to be less lonely, to, to be less of a lone wolf, you know, yeah. in my faith as well, and connect with other people. In fact, I've, even this week, just been having a ton of Zoom conversations with, with people all over, all over the country. And that's, uh, that's been really life-giving. You know, to me, and I, I, I've appreciated and enjoyed doing that. I want to do more. What about you, man? It's great. Yeah, I mean, similar. Um, I always set health and fitness goals, and uh, you know, um, yeah, bulking season should end. Although I love bulking season for a lot of reasons. You uh, usually make your best PRs in bulking season. Yeah, like you, you get stronger. Um, but the, yeah. Uh, so some of that, I'm going to get back on, you know, the diet, try to drop some, some LBs. And then, um, I, I, I want to do some, I, I want to add to my fitness journey. I want to, before the COVID pandemic, like I was really consistent with like playing sports, um, like once a week you know, in a men's league, things like that. I want to get back into that somehow. Right. Um, Shuffleboard. What's the soccer, basketball, <laughs> something, something active. Um, you, you're not, when, when you get to my age, shuffleboard is, you know, that's, <laughs> that's where it's at, which I don't know if you've well, ever played shuffleboard, but I have, like, yes. it's actually, I, it's, it's amazing. It's fun. Honestly. It's fun. But for, for me and our shuffleboards here in town, it, they normally involve beer, which is not good for the, uh, the old gut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can be counterproductive <laughs> for the LBs. Um, but yeah, I mean, similarly like ministry and life. I mean, I, I'm like you, I just want to, I, I actually, I don't know if my denomination will have me, but I actually feel called to, to help create some community and discussion around deconstruction and, and these things we're talking about within my denomination. I mean, through this, I mean, a lot of guys probably even listening now reached out, just thanking me for, for being a part of this podcast and having these conversations. <clears throat> so I feel like there's probably a need for it. Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, <laughs> I'm cutting off your news resolutions, but I think denominations for, for those people who are part of denominations. And, and if, 
you know, leaders of denominations are listening. Denominations are at a decision point and, and they, they are at a fork in the road where they have to decide, are they going to be a part of engaging conversations about what is next? You know, what, what the church is going to look like going forward, or are they going to put a wall up and say, we, we, we're going to distance ourselves from those conversations. Um, and I think that the denominations that do that, uh, aren't, aren't going to, aren't going to, they're going to lose their effectiveness in, in what's next and yeah. in their engagement because it's going to happen. <clears throat> Churches, the landscape is already changing and will continue to dramatically change and denominations have a choice as to whether or not they want to be a part of what the next season looks like or insulate themselves and slowly continue their attrition. I hope they'll choose to be a part of those conversations. I hope the CMA will. I hope all the denominations who are really kind of at that decision yeah. point will, uh, will will choose to engage rather than disengage out of fear. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, it's needed and, and, and people are scared, right? It is. Like, it's scary. It really is. Yeah. And I understand that. It's scary for denominations. But you know what's scary? Scary for denominations. What's scarier is no one being a part of your denomination. because they're all somewhere else. So, you know, the alternative is you face the fear and the questions and the change or you you go the way of cease to exist. And it's, it's interesting in denominations. You see, it's really the older folks that are holding on. Right. Yeah. Um, Like me. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I guess we're, we're headed there. We're we're more middle age. Headed there. No, but like, I'm only I mean, middle age if I'm living to 90 and this body isn't making it to 90. <laughs> um, we, we, uh, I mean, I look at, I'm just taking my denomination, right? It, it's all the guys, you know, that are in power, the boomers and, and, and a lot of the influencers are boomers and, and still the lar- vast majority of the votes in our denomination are the boomers that um, don't want to change that don't, see the need to change um and are like silencing voices like mine and um others and and so obviously there's some younger people that feel that their way as well but i think even younger people who feel that way don't want to change are at least open to having the conversations they're not going to try to silence me you know they'll, they'll engage in dialogue um so i think that's got to change there's got to be a space where we can have an open dialogue without fearing for our ordination being stripped from us or, or what have you. And that's why a lot of guys won't speak up and they're privately texting me because they don't, they fear that they're going to lose their, yeah. their jobs or their livelihoods. And I guess maybe I should fear that as well. But, um, well, I wish, I you know, I wish denominational leaders could see <clears throat> that there are more options on the table than simply, uh, the whole denomination changes and we lose all of this that we like and we love or everything stays exactly the same. You know, that the, the, there are third ways, you know, you can, you can allow those conversations to happen. I, you, you know, I, I don't know why denominations can't move to a space of seeing themselves more as a big umbrella for multiple expressions of ways of doing ministry. Um, rather than everything having to be homogenous, the same, you know, I, I mean, if we can move to a place where, yeah, continue to, to do the denominational thing, the CMA thing, whatever it is that traditionally the, the way you've done it. Okay, great. But wouldn't you rather have this other thing, you know, have your best minds, have your 
best thinkers, have people who are on the leading edge of what truly is the mission field, you, you know, the, the, the next season of, of yeah. ministry in need. And, and wouldn't you rather have those people and those churches and those thinkers and those folks who already believe in your mission and what you're trying to do? Um, are already ordained by you. Wouldn't you rather have them under your umbrella, even if they're doing something completely, you know, kind of different than, than what you've been doing, rather than have them, I hate to use the word, but rather than have them competing against you yeah, under some other denomination or under some other umbrella, uh, don't lose those guys. Don't lose those girls, you know. Yeah. Um, keep that under your umbrella. Um, but... It, yeah. it's, a, it's it's a decision everybody has to make yeah. as to as to what they'll do, but yeah, I hope it, I, I hope they will um, I hope they'll not push folks whose soul is resonating with the greatest needs on the ground. I, I hope that they won't push those people out out of fear uh, of our denominations. Yeah, um, couldn't agree more. I think. Um, yeah, we're at, we're at a crossroads with a lot of denominations that, which is interesting because most of these denominations started from having conversations like we're having, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know. When I'm, and, I mean, I'm having people call and, and talk to me all the time saying I am, um, I'm not in alignment with with my 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 church. I'm not in alignment, you know, with my denomination. Sometimes that alignment is huge. Sometimes that alignment is, is, is minor, but they recognize that any, any public um, misalignment on what it is that they're wrestling with means essentially they will either be pushed out or have to leave. And um, for some of them, there is space to take their church through a process of, of realignment but it's not worth it because they don't feel like the denomination is going to support them through it. And so they, they're faced with the choice of either staying and being silent and continuing to just pretend or to leave and go somewhere else. And um, I, I don't think denominations recognize how many pastors are on the fence and ready to leave. I, I think denominational leaders would be shocked. And it's not just it's not just the young folks. I mean, we're talking People in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, people who have been in these denominations for years are quietly considering leaving their denomination because of uh, misalignment and denominations inability or unwillingness to engage an honest conversation about some of these about some of these topics. And it's going to decimate denominations whenever those floodgates break and people People start saying it's less risk for me to leave, or it's, it's more risk for me to stay than yeah. it is for me to leave. Right, right now, yeah. it's a risk reward, you know, scenario like you just yeah. said. You, yeah. you know, it's like where, where does the paycheck come from? Who's going to hire me? Where am I going to go? Right now, there's not perceptually for a lot of these folks anywhere to go. It's not going to be that way for long. <laughs> They're going to either find a place that that's a startup that welcomes them under the umbrella or they're just going to say, I'm going to go, go at it on my own. And it is going to decimate denominations whenever that happens because it's going to be rats out of burning buildings. Yeah. That's already happening. I think, I mean, I've had three or four conversations over the last couple of weeks with guys in my denomination, trying to figure out a way out. Um, so it needs to be addressed and, uh, yeah, or they're going to die. Which, 
if they're not going to address these issues, it probably isn't a bad thing that those denominations die. Um, so part of the reason why uh, we're here, um, I guess you and I are here, but also um, the church as a whole is here, um, is this idea of deconstruction. And I, I was thinking about this um, in our podcast. And so over the next four or five weeks, we have a special guest coming in a couple of weeks. Hopefully that works out um, to talk, to maybe take a hiatus from this. But there's four tenets of evangelicalism. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but we're going to go through them um, kind of line by line and then break them down in the coming weeks. Um, but there was a lot of, you know, back, I guess it was like the 30s or 40s. Uh, somebody may know the better date of when they did this is they got together because there was like progressive, like much like today, progressives and fundamentalists and people debating uh, about the faith and, and where we're headed. And so they got together and um, they came up with what this word evangelicalism and what that looks like. And so they came up with four kind of tenets, pillars of evangelicalism in these meetings and, and they were the authority of the Bible, the centrality of the cross, personal conversion, and then kind of social justice, Christian action in, in evangelism in the world. And, and these are what can unify us. Um, and I think that, um, by and large evangelical church, even, you know, non-evangelical Protestant churches have not, stuck to these kind of tenets. <laughs> I, I actually, I'm kind of shocked. When you read those four, yeah. I was like, that doesn't sound like evangelicalism to me. Yeah. Um, at, least they, not, vague, at least not what I feel like evangelicalism is. Yeah. Like, like if not. somebody was to sit down, if you were to just go out to a random person, even a random evangelical and say, tell me the first four things that come to mind when you think of evangelicalism. Maybe, maybe they would hit one or two of those. Maybe I, I'm kind of shocked by that list. Yeah, because um, I think it allowed for a lot of different viewpoints to be a part of this movement. So um, that big umbrella idea, and it and it kept the main things the main things. I think most if you're still following Jesus now, people there are a lot of people that have deconstructed the point they just don't want to follow Jesus anymore. But if you're still you're deconstructing, you're still following Jesus. Like you have a hard time disagreeing with those four things, um, and and so we've kind of like I think over time become more fundamental, added to um, you know those things. And so the first one we wanted to hit today was like the authority of the Bible. So um, you had to start there, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's start with an easy one, right? Yeah. The authority of the Bible. <laughs> well, it's an errand, so, um, okay, there we go. We're done. Yeah. Well, I, I think every Christian would, would agree, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, that the Bible is part of our authority structure. Now, all of those major parts of Christianity might add, have diff- have pieces that are also authority, but everyone would agree the scriptures are part of that authority. So we can... We can all agree, yes, scripture is authority. But um, then you get down to uh, what fundamentalist evangelicals and by and large broadly evangelicals say is the authority of the Bible equals inerrancy. So why don't you define inerrancy for us? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Can you define inerrancy? 
I, I mean, I think you, I think you can, but everybody defines um, inerrancy differently. This is one of the things, you know, I, I, I posted what, what a tweet or two this week about inerrancy and, um, you, you know, it's interesting. I can post about um, LGBTQ. I can post uh, about, you know, Catholics versus Protestantism. You put something out there about inerrancy and it's just like there's so much heat under that under that topic uh it exceeds in a lot of ways the heat under under everything else which is fascinating to me but everybody has a different definition for it and so you know i think uh what inerrancy came out of modernism and biblical criticism in, in the 19th and 20th century. A, a lot of folks who were social justice, who were beginning to question uh, biblical foundations and fundamentalism kind of came up and said, no, no, we can't lose the authority of the Bible. And so, you know, this idea of inerrancy uh, is important. And so inerrancy really began as a thought and a doctrine in the church, it's only, what, what, a few hundred years old, 19th, 20th century. But most people will say that the church has always viewed the Bible as inerrant, uh, which is not really true, but it's difficult to unpack that because a lot of the same words are used. If you don't know what inerrancy means, um, a lot of folks use different words to describe it, like they will use inerrancy in the place of the word authority or in the place of the word truth or in place of the word um, perfection or without error. And all of these things are, are traditionally part of inerrancy, but correct me if I'm wrong, classic inerrancy essentially says that the Bible is absolutely 100% perfect and without error grammatically it's perfect yeah. and without error uh, in in everything that it states doctrinally about God, that there are zero contradictions about anything in Scripture, anything that's perceived as being a contradiction is a lack of our understanding, and that also it is without error, essentially in, in everything that it chooses to teach, science, philosophy, um, origins of the earth, humanity, gender, sexuality, that everything that the Bible talks about is uh, absolute truth without any mixture of error. The difficulty in that is, is I think that there are very few people who believe in that level of inerrancy. And so there's a lot of nuancing that begins to go on because people say, well, that's not, that's not really what inerrancy believes. You know, we, we wouldn't say that the Bible is without error necessarily. We would say that the original autographs, you know, the or, the actual pen to paper that happened whenever Paul wrote it or whenever uh, Mark wrote it is without error. But we don't have any of those. So if there are errors in it, it's errors that have been introduced later. Uh, there's also... You know, folks who would say, well, when we talk about inerrancy and, and perfection, if there's contradictions in there, it's simply that we don't we don't understand, <laughs> you know, yeah. that it's it, it, perceived contradictions are not real contradictions. Well, that's that's a nuance. Uh, that's that's backing off, really, of what inerrancy says. Some people would call that limited inerrancy. 
So, you know, I think um, first uh, agreeing on what the definition is is important, but, but inerrancy isn't authority of scripture. <laughs> you know, inerrancy yeah. is, is talking about perfection and, and all that it teaches scientifically, all of these things. So, so go ahead yeah. and fill, fill in the blanks. No, no, no you, you defined it well. And I think, um, so why people have defined that as, as authority, you have to believe in inerrancy to believe in authority, because if the Bible's wrong about one jot or jit, tittle, right, then it loses all of its authority is what yeah. they would and say. And I think there's, there's fear in that. And I understand that fear in that it's a slippery slope. You know, if, if you if you fall back from this idea that the Bible can have error, how far down that rabbit hole can you go or will you go? And there's a lot of fear that, well, you know, that the thing people say, which I think is a valid question, but it's also a little bit of a logical fallacy. Well, so what about the resurrection? Does that mean the resurrection might be an error? So, you know, I think that this is a great conversation, but... In order to have the conversation, we have to be willing to admit that the Bible um, is not inerrant. If we take the classic and hardest definition of inerrancy, the Bible legitimately cannot stand up to that kind of scrutiny. And almost every academic scholar, even in evangelicalism, uh, understands and knows that and if they subscribe to inerrancy, they subscribe to a lesser or more nuanced or limited version of inerrancy, which I think we would say, you know, when people say, well, the church has always held to this. No, the church is not always held to inerrancy. And whenever, you know, Augusta and Eusebius and, and these folks are are speaking of without error, they, they are they are speaking of that in different ways than we use those words. Uh, and it's clear if you don't just take a sentence or two out of context and read the context of everything yeah. that they're saying, that they're describing something very different. In fact, Al Calvin himself said that there were errors in scripture. John Calvin <laughs> himself, yeah, yeah. you know, said that there are errors in scripture. You know, he would, you know, write it, but well, Paul got it wrong but, here. What he should have written yeah. or what he intended to write was this. Well, that's an error, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, yeah, so there's inerrancy, there's infallibility, which... Um, it's kind of like a nuance to inerrancy, but they would say, infall those who believe in bi biblical infallibility would say that not necessarily all the facts are correct, that there's errors in the facts. They, they wouldn't say it's a science book or philosophy book, but what is infallible is the principles of our faith and the practice are true. So that's where they would say, well, the resurrection is true and infallible because that's key to our faith, right? So the, those key elements to our faith are infallible. But yeah, Paul screwed up here. Um, it, it's not a science book. It's not talking about God created in seven days, um, you know. So I think th that's a healthy distinction. And so in that way, and many of these people are in our colleges and seminaries teaching infallibility, um, evangelical even. Um, and so not everybody is inerrant. But what this leads to, because it's a common practice in churches to preach inerrancy, to preach um, that if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. And so what uh, I think the number one way, the number one way people deconstruct is over this issue. And I think that's why it's important we discuss it and talk about it, because as soon as people get older and they go out into the world, 
college, school, workplace, they're confronted with the, they, they find facts that dis, dispute what they see in the Bible and they don't know what to do with that. Um, so, it, and they've been told their whole life, if you don't believe all of this is true, then you're not a Christian anymore. Yeah. And, and so then they realize, well, maybe I'm not a Christian or, and they, or they start to nuance and, and, and whatever. Um, and so we would submit to them pastorally that there, there's, there's other ways. Like we don't believe that it's inerrant, it's perfect. And, 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 and there's other ways to read the Bible that are in more healthy ways, we would say, um, that would allow you to be a Christian in this world, to see the Bible as the authority and still be confronted with facts that don't necessarily line up with what, what the Bible is saying. So um, I think that's important to highlight. And I think there's people journeying through that that might even be pastors right now that are like preaching inerrancy because <laughs> they're supposed to. And they're like, yeah. they're wrestling with it, right? They're, they're having a tough time with it. Um, so I would say to them, like, there's two, there's two options here. There's, um, one option is just to, to, or two extreme options. One option is just to completely leave the faith, leave the church. And then the other option is what we see a lot online and Twitter. I saw this week, probably in response, our friend Dale, probably in response to your tweet, um, talking about don't send your kids to, to colleges. Don't send your kids to. Oh, you think that was in response to me? I have a feeling. I have a feeling. And then, <laughs> oh, sweet um, Dale. Sweet, sweet Dale. Yeah. And then, um, or, or homeschool Bless your his kids. Heart. Completely cocoon yourself away from society. Yeah. Well, and you, I, you make such a good point, Matt, because people do walk away from the faith. People become atheists, become ex-evangelicals. Exactly because there is no space for this conversation or to nuance inerrancy and inspiration. You know, they feel as though it's either I accept 100% that this book is without error, that God, you know, grabbed the hand of the writers and, and, and scribed it out himself, you know, through the spirit, or I can't believe any of it. And because the church has given no space for the conversation or no middle space, if people are making the choice between one or the other, any, any atheist, you know, any, any thinking person, you know, Google it. There aren't just a couple of contradictions and errors in scripture. We're talking hundreds of contradictions and errors in scripture. These, to my knowledge, most or, or none of them have to do with serious doctrines of the faith, but they're there. And if you're telling somebody that it has no error and they find that it does in small areas, they're just going to assume that it also has errors in big areas as well. If you've given them no other lens or, or hermeneutic with which to see inspiration through. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, that pastor leader, I mean, those that are preaching inerrancy. And, and they think they're doing the right thing. I, I mean, I, I they, truly think they're doing they're, the They're not the, here, the, <laughs> but you're the one driving people away from the church with yeah. that talk. Um, is what I'm saying. And I lead a Bible study in my church, and we talk about this. We actually have, and I'm going to mention it here. Um, you know, we went, and I know your church community did as well. We went through this book by Pete Enns, um, How the Bible Actually Works, and we had these discussions. And I found in that Bible study um, that – all of these people have questioned their faith because of inerrancy, because how could 
and fill in the blank, whatever issue. We'll get into some of them um, here in a bit. Um, how could that happen? Because it doesn't line up with what I know to be true um, factually. Um, and so they've questioned their faith and they found their way back to God. And, and they would and they have confessed to me that, like, they've helped me find their way or I've helped them find their way back to God through this conversation, through allowing them to conversate about these discrepancies and still show that the Bible is authority and is in, in those ba- key principles of our faith are true. Um, and so Pete ends, he says in his book, and he says a lot, um, and, you know, we'll, we'll plug his podcast, Bible for Normal People. It's a great place to go uh, and listen, you know, after you listen to our podcast. Um, and, uh, choose, I, I will say if you have to choose one, choose Pete Inns, you know. Yeah. No, I, no, I think, you know, the conversations that he has, especially around this issue, are so unbelievably important. I think it should be required reading or required listening for every evangelical Christian, because you're right. It is the number one reason why people deconstruct is because we have sold them a lie about the reason and the purpose for scripture. And um, it only takes a few questions or a few facts to literally pull down the entire house of cards if the entire house of cards is built on Inerrancy, and so I think the work that Peter and others, but especially Pete Inns, is doing here is is so unbelievably important. I would, yeah, choose him over us if you've got a choice. Yeah. So he says, yeah, he's great. So he says that the Bible is not written for certainty, and it, it was an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book, which completely goes against our plain and clear, <laughs> accurate readers, right? It's plain. The Bible's plain and clear. Pete says it's ambiguous, diverse, and it's ancient. Obviously, I think it's important. The ancient's important because we need to, as we do our interpretation, we're not interpreting it in 2023 America, right? We're interpreting it through the lens of the ancients. And it's not written for certainty. It's It, it was not written to to be certain about certain facts, um, and even your, be certain about your faith. It was written, and he says this, and I, I believe it to be true. And he's not the only one that says this. There's a lot of people that, that say this as well. There's like Scott McKnight, uh, N.T. Wright. The Bible is about revealing and making known God to human, humanity. Um, that is the purpose of the Bible, to reveal God to us. Um, and so the authority we find in that is the authority on who God is. You know, um, it's not the authority on like rules and regulations and, and science and, and all of these things. It's it's authority on who God is. And then I think we can deduce from that ways in which we're supposed to live into the world because of who God is. We're called to to be his icons into the world. Right. We are his image bearers. And so we need to look at who God is and then reflect that into the world. So that's the authority in which we we live our lives on, not on, you know. And, and we could get into the, you know, uh, how our sexuality, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not clear on that. Um, our science, it's not clear on creation and science. It's not clear on, you know, a lot of different things. Um, and it's so not clear. Yeah. It's not clear on a lot of politics are like whether we're going to be a Christian nationalist or not, you know, and it's so, intentionally unclear. I, I mean, it's ambiguous. I love that word. Yeah. If we're, if we're teaching that, the Bible is supposed to be clear and to give us clarity on all of these issues. Uh, God is an awful communicator. 
you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't stand up to that need. So there has to we, we, we had to have misunderstood the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible could not have been written for certainty um, of the things that we are trying to make it certain of. Yeah, so your your tweet uh, you tweeted out, I guess just a few days ago. Uh-oh. Um, I'm I'm always worried about when somebody says your tweet that you tweeted here. All right, which one? Hit me with it. About the inadequ- <laughs> the inadequacy of inerrancy is that it places into concrete what God preferred complex. That's what we're talking about. Those who cling to inerrancy mutilate the mystery and beauty of the text. Straightjacket God to human interpretation become servants to the wrong master. And then you ended with uh, Christianity does not equal concrete. Um, And I I think that's so true. And especially as we, I don't know why, if somebody actually read the Bible and how even people, Jesus interpreted, um, you know, the Old Testament and how rabbis interpret the Old Testament, it was anything but concrete, right? Jesus I mean, just even reading the Gospels, Jesus was never like concrete. <laughs> like he left most of his teaching open ended, right? With questions and created more questions than actual answers. Um, parables. Answer the, the whole point questions. of parables. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they were just open ended. Like there's so many ways you can interpret them. Um, and that's very Jewish of him. It's very, you know, and so the, the, it's a written by Jewish people, interpreted by Jewish people. And yet we want to we want to then put our modern boomer mindset onto that. You know, it's not concrete. It was never intended to be concrete. And so I, I love that tweet. I thought it was right on, man. I'm um, not. I'm not a boomer. FYI. No, you're. Nice. Uh, <laughs> no, I. There is. I, I, maybe you understand this, Matt. But there is in Christendom. Maybe it's really just Western thought. There is this extreme fear of ambiguity and uh i think that that has been a killer for our faith and it's it's been a killer i think for evangelicalism is a need to to find certainty and to concrete things that um i think god left intentionally ambiguous i I mean faith itself let's just think about faith and what that means faith requires some level of ambiguity and uncertainty we use the word faith all the time but faith implies necessarily ambiguity and uncertainty and and, and mystery you know there this yeah. idea of, of god is a mystery and so much of of what we desire and experience is this this mystery of holiness and, and jesus and, and paul speak a lot about that mystery of godliness mystery implies and requires ambiguity but we don't want it we hate it and i don't know why i don't know if it's fear uh within ourselves of being wrong and there's this extreme need of being right or if it's just that um we want to be better than our neighbor you know that's a competition you know who's going to be sitting at the right hand you know of jesus uh-huh. who's going to be on one side and who's going to be on the other you know, it better be me and my brother, James and John. I, I don't know if that's it, if we're just trying to one-up the folks around us by getting it right. Um, but it's a it's it's a problem. Yeah, are we going to put our faith, as you're talking, I just thought of this, are we putting our faith in God or 
or we put it in our intellect. Um, I think that's what a lot of people put their faith in. And so they, they want to be certain. Um, you know, I remember being at, you know, the college we both went to, although we didn't know each other there. We, I think you graduated the year before I arrived. But, 2000. Yeah. So you graduated and then I showed up that fall. Um, but I it just was remember it's probably a good thing. Worlds colliding. <laughs> things, there might've been great explosions and yeah. <laughs> but I remember sitting in these classes, like these theology classes and thinking, man, they, they have this special knowledge of how this all system, the system all fits together. And I remember like reading scripture and being so confused. Like, I don't see how this fits with that, but like, they're just, they're telling me it all fits together. And I, I remember thinking, well, one day I'll come to that knowledge. And yeah. it all that happens all the time. Me. Like I do that all the time. People will, you know, respond to a tweet that I've posted and be like this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse proves you wrong. And I'll go and read those verses and I'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> that has absolutely nothing to do with what you're trying to make it do. But we've so used the Bible. We've weaponized it yeah. in, in order to concrete and prove our interpretations um pete ends would say we've we've totally we've totally misused it yeah and 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 errant folks they they use the it didn't make even sense to me at cedarville it was like they use the bible bible verses to try to prove that the bible is perfect without error and how can you use you know <laughs> the circle or your reason it's like like that's so not academic at all right like well like when we went present our dissertations well my paper said it so it must be true <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that um yeah it just it doesn't hold up underweight and it doesn't hold up i mean the bible has a lot of um, contradictions. So we'll just go through a few. I wrote a few down, see how far we get. But like creation is one. That's a big one we start with, especially if you go to any sort of Bible college or maybe even take a class um, somewhere on creation. You learn that, um, first of all, there's a lot going on, right? Yeah, there's two creation stories. Yeah, but right. I mean, two, two, there are two creation stories and they're not the same. Like, yeah, they're not the same. That, like, no one ever taught me that in fundamental Baptist church. No. Well, and the biggest mind blower that there's no answer to from the Ken Hams of the world is, is the one that, that those literal creationists use are, are literally interpreting a poem. Like when, have, when in, in ever have you, do you interpret poetry literally? Jews have always, always seen Genesis and the creation story as a as a poetry as a allegorical story about the creation of the world always and yet Christians are like it is literal down 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 to the letter and somebody's wrong but the Jews wrote it so I just don't know that we're right and yeah. science says we're wrong. Yeah. Did you yeah. say we're wrong? Science says we're wrong. I I don't know. Yeah, so that that's a big one. I mean, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. Um, you know, you know, there's two creation stories. There's um clear in the poet in the poem there's any 
Well, even in the create, I mean, there's there's this clear allegory being used. Um, there's clear, it's clearly, uh, you know, uh, storytelling. Um, it's not, it wasn't either creation story was not written to be like, this is literally how it happened. It was, you know, going back to what the Bible purpose is, is it's revealing God to humanity. It was written in a way to reveal God as creator. So the truth, God as creator is true. God created like that's infallible. That's truth. That's our, the truth about our faith, that God is creator. How that happened, well, obviously there was no hum- human that was present when God created. And so it's open to our storytelling and, and how we want to st- – but, so but the purpose of these writers was to write that God is creator and, and reveal that in, in different ways. Um, and they told it with – very common storytelling uh, tools and, and idioms um, of that day. So um, I think that's important for people to understand. I mean, there's a talking um, snake with legs, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a talking, I didn't snake, there's a I talking didn't snake with legs, y'all. <laughs> I, I'm not saying God but can't, Kevin, do, I'm not saying God can't do that, but there is a talking snake with legs, y'all. Snakes talked before the fall. That was their curse. Yeah, but only snakes. <laughs> I just, I, I'm not. I'm not saying you cannot believe it literally, but I'm also saying that you cannot say it can only be taken literally. That that to me is is where we get into the issue. Um, I I don't have an issue so much with folks who who need to see things as literal that I don't see as literal. Where I have a problem is where people get to the point in the inerrancy conversation where they say, you can only see it as this way, or you have essentially said, well, the resurrection isn't literal, well, Jesus wasn't literal, well, the, God never wrote the Bible, where they extrapolate that out, so they're the ones slippery sloping, you know, where they say you either take Genesis as being literal or else, you essentially are an unchristian heretic wolf. That is, um, that's you, that's weaponizing, that's weaponizing God, <laughs> frankly, and your own interpretation. Sorry, I yeah. went off on a bender there. No, no, you're, you're <laughs> right. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> um, it's, yeah. I'll shut up. You talk. No, I think I think we covered it without like creating a whole podcast episode on creation. But so the other one, another one that's common is the flood. Another one that's connected to science, you know, the literal um, the literalists will say, well, the whole world was flooded, um, whereas um, there's really there's no evidence of that. Like scientists have shown over and over again, there's no evidence that there was a completely worldwide flood. Um, I know maybe that'll boggle some people's minds. Um, you know, flood stories are very common in ancient times, uh, which is why it's important to understand the Bible is ancient. Um, and so there's, and the Jewish flood story. flood story was not the first, it's not the oldest. No, um, not the oldest. It's a common, common thing, but, um, could there have been a literal flood that was big and 
Yes, there was very big localized floods, much like today. There's huge localized floods um, that happened. Um, that happen all the time, right? We just saw one um, down in f- your neck of the woods from the hurricane. Um, so there's no reason to believe, you know, thinking about ancient people that they thought like this localized flood was the whole world because that was their whole world. They may not even known the world existed beyond where they had traveled. And if their whole area was covered, um, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. So that there could have literally been a flood. It wasn't the whole entire world. Yeah. Well, and this, Um, I think whenever Katrina happened, you know, there were some people who, or, or maybe one person, but probably more than one who came out and said, this is the judgment of God on New Orleans for their sin. Whenever um, whenever the hurricane a few months ago hit Florida, DeSantis's Republican Florida, nobody was saying that. It was the judgment of God on DeSantis or the Republicans because it hit Florida. But because it was New Orleans, uh, yeah. you know, a cer- <laughs> certain group of Christians said, well, Katrina is the judge. That flood was the judgment of God on, on New Orleans. Uh, and everybody else kind of in Christendom, e- even strong conservative evangelicals looked at that and said, that's crazy talk. Like, that's not, that's not my God. Uh, you know, that's, even if you believe in a God who keeps short accounts, a whole bunch of people who were not deserving of that died in that flood. And yet we're willing to look at Noah's flood where literally God wipes out all of humanity, but eight people and say that, God didn't do that in New Orleans with Katrina, but he absolutely did that in the flood, you know, and this is another reason why people do deconstruct and walk away from their faith is because they read all of this, um, these perceptions of why things happen in the world and that God is angry and vengeful and retributive against folks. And they say, I can't believe in that God. But we say, you know, well, that was exactly the way God was. But today we look at it whenever natural disasters happen and we say, no, no, that's not God didn't send that. That's not God's judgment. (laughs) Yeah. So my my Dallas seminary, you know, folks would say, well, that's dispensationalism. Well, that's another topic for another day, but you're crazy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I, I think, you know, you've got to you've got to kind of look at these things and say um, you were able to look at Katrina and say, OK, that's not what's going on there. There's there's something else that we can learn from that experience. And that's the same thing that, that I think that we're saying whenever we talk about these creation stories and we talk about the flood in Genesis is is I think it's OK for people to look at that and say, I think I can hit pause on the literal for a moment and say, maybe there is something else that I'm supposed to learn from this story than that. And that's where the whole, you know, is Israelite Jewish idea of rabbinical storytelling and these things really comes into play is because these stories are truthful. They happened, but the story itself is an allegory to teach something about that event. Creation happened. As you said, creation happened. God was the motivator and the inspirer and the creator behind that. But the story is the two stories in Genesis 1 and 2 are teaching two different lessons about that God who created. And it's not intended, I don't think, to be literal. And the same with Noah. 
Same with the flood. I think, you know, the big overarching theme is God rescues, you know, his people. Um, I, I think that's the point that we want to get out of the flood, right? That God is a rescuer. Um, and he prom, you know, the rainbow, he promises to take care of humanity. Um, and that sin needs to be punished. I mean, that's a whole theme throughout the old Testament as well as this sin and how it's going to be dealt with. Um, and so, yeah, it's teaching spiritual truths about who God is. Um, and so that's important. It's not like a literal retelling of, of an event. Um, even though it could have been, like you say, like, if you want to look at that literally fine, but look at it literally with like facts, um, that we know, <laughs> uh, don't try to dispute the facts, you know, that uh, the, the flood thing actually might be more controversial for us to say what we're saying right now. Really? Creation? Yeah. Creation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because it, I mean, they're looking for that like golden bullet, right? Like if we find the ark, so am I gonna right? Are, are you and I gonna end up on woke preacher clips or something? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, Ooh, yeah. Big question: so, the flood. Then there's like the stories, you know, Jonah and Job, right? That, um, to me and in you know our friend Pete Enns and others, not just Pete. Um, see them as as similar like these th- these events likely did not happen in this way um but again they're they're telling a story about who god is to in revealing god to god's people um and right did did jonah actually get swallowed by a whale do we believe that happened and they get spit up and survive is that even possible um <laughs> Likely not, right? Did the Job? Did it happen the way in which it's described in the scriptures? Yeah, um, yeah. Job to me is Job to me is probably the easiest place to have this conversation because Job presents it, a literal reading of Job presents God as being um, so disconnected from humanity that he sees his most loyal followers as simply being a game of chess uh, that, that, that Satan is able to kind of toy with and that God's okay with that and that everything is maybe on the table from losing your entire family and your kids to a game between Satan and God and then the thinking that having all of new kids return to you replaces all, like I think and then Job goes through all of this and God shows up in the end and kind of essentially gives Job the middle finger and says, who are you? you know? <laughs> Which I think is true. Who are you? Who am I? But yeah. I think that Job is a great way to have this conversation and to say there are better ways to understand some of these things than the literal. There are holier ways to understand these things than literal. And I think that that's that's the part that for a lot of us is very difficult space to get to, but it's important space to get to, is pausing for a moment and saying, uh, the literal, interpreting something literally as, as factual in the way it is written, may not be the godliest, the holiest, or the most righteous understanding of a, of a telling of a story. 
some, some of the best story, you know, if you have a choice between a fiction book and a nonfiction book, the better story to learn from is going to be a nonfiction. I mean, it's going to be a fiction book, you know, movies. We all love things that are based on a true story, but they're not the true story. <laughs> they are a fabricated telling of that story in order to teach the lesson better. And so I, yes. I, think, I think Job is a great place for us to back up and say, there's really no way that this happened literally in the way that it's said. It just, there's not, that kind of God does not match up to the God anywhere else in scripture. So there may be a better way, a better lens to look through this, um, to see what God is trying to teach because he may be trying to teach me something that's more important than the facts of the story. Genesis, God may be trying to teach you something more important than what was created on day four. God may be trying to teach you something more important than build a boat. If God asks you to, <laughs> there are more yeah. important things to learn and from these stories well, than the facts. I, yeah. I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking about like, like our culture today, like we've established what the Bible is, but back in those days, they didn't have, this is the canon, right? This is, um, they just had stories they told to reveal God, and we have that today, right? Yeah. We have what, what are the great Chronicles yeah. of Narnia? We have the Shack, um, Pilgrim's Progress is another one um, out there. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, if God were like, writing the Bible today, it would be movies. It, it would be like, an Avenger series. These are the stories. I mean, it yeah. would be it would be. I mean, the the the, the biggest box office, Avatar two. You know, Avatar yeah. 2 isn't teaching us about blue people on a planet <laughs> far away from here. Like, like you look at Avatar and you go into Avatar. This is a literal story, which I'm supposed <laughs> to learn about this planet, you know, that has the Navi. And yeah. no, no, this yeah. is not there is something to be learned here that is more important than the facts of the story. Yes. Uh, uh, the adventures, you know, it, it's and storytelling. It, and it uh, happens in, in scripture, right? Yeah. And Jesus does it with parables. Like the parables are not, those things literally didn't happen. Jesus. It's a great, it's a great point, Matt, is that Jesus story. continues this tradition of Jewish storytelling and, and parables are, are the best example of the fact that this allegorical storytelling style that is a part of Judaism continues in both the New Testament and, and the Tanakh and, and the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. Um, getting towards the end, but I wanted to highlight to Paul. So like Paul, people like to, to interpret him literally. Um, and so we tend to evangelicals, I, I'm not, hopefully not included in that anymore, but evangelicals inerrants tend to pick, actually pick and choose what they're going to interpret literally from Paul. Um, and so, you know, one is his sexual ethic. I'm going to keep right? my mug in front of my face right here. Yeah. Just... So first of all, like, I mean, we've talked about this with the sexuality stuff, but like, so if we were to take Paul's sexual ethic, right, that, um, literally as these inerrants want, he actually tells us that it's better to not get married. Like his sexual ethic is actually to not get married, to not have sex at all. Oh, we knew um, that though, right? Yeah. We'll nuance and that one. If, 
And if you are married, that you only have sex, not to have children, as Augustine would, would submit to us, but only to curb your passions once in a while so that you can continue to work with Christ. Because he actually didn't really think we needed to have children because he literally thought Jesus was returning in a few weeks. Like he, he thought Jesus was, was coming back very, very soon. Right. And the kingdom was to be established and there was no reason to have have children. So like if you're going to follow Paul's sexual ethic to a T, then then you should not have sex to have children. And you should be very limited in your marriage and how you have sex. And you probably should not get married. Right. Yeah. But yeah, treat your slaves well. Yeah, and that's the other one that you got. I wanted to let you talk about that one. <laughs> well, I just it's the, like if you're going to interpret, if you're going to be inerrancy and a honest inerrancy individual, which is a lot of eyes, um, there are sexual ethic. There are at best six verses in Scripture that deal with um maybe homosexuality how many verses in there in the old testament in the new testament deal with slavery um but we a lot more than six i'm telling you and it's telling you how to treat your slaves how to beat them <laughs> how, like it's insane that we hold to very inerrant without error without any shadow of difference on on the sexual ethic passages about homosexuality, but as you said, not the ones necessarily about marriage, not the ones about divorce, and certainly not the ones about slavery. People say, well, in their culture, they knew that slavery was a thing that they couldn't let go of, so they advanced it by saying, treat your slaves well. Okay, maybe, but yeah, try that line in 18th century America, you know, in 19th century, you know, you know, talk well, to me about that around the Civil War times. So, you know, it's okay to have slaves, just treat them well, Christian. It, Paul's same line on, of y'all. Yeah, Paul, Paul's same line of argumentation against, let's say, women um, in serving in ministry um, that most of these inerrant people would say women can't serve in ministry right or have to serve under a man these same passages include slavery so we've found a way as the church to nuance and remove that that paul paul was actually against slavery and not actually you know that he was for being women's being subjugated in patriarchy when so we can nuance the slavery out but we can't nuance the women thing out um, to me, that doesn't line up. That was a big thing for me as I'm doing study is I realized this like, um, well, we can we can like literally the same argumentation Paul is using for slavery as he is for women being uh, subjugated. And yet we can. All right. Free slaves no longer have slaves in our society, but women still have to be put down. I, that to me is a big disconnect. And I think a lot of people have a problem with that as well. Um, that leads to a lot of deconstruction in our world. Um, and, um, and then obviously, you know, all the sexuality issues that we talk about and yeah, I mean, Paul uses the word pornea, right? Like, um, what did he mean by that? Like he had no concept of homosexuality as we see it today that didn't exist as we see it today. Um, so there's no way you can actually use Paul to argue against homosexuality as we see it today because he had no concept of it. So he wasn't, he didn't comment on it. It was, it's ambiguous. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it, yeah. I get fired up. Well, and then your friend, you know, challenges you to a duel on Twitter. What's his face <laughs> over it? Gruthius. <laughs> yeah, and he he says, "Well, if you have the right hermeneutic, then you uh, you can distinguish that slavery out of that." You know what? But <laughs> who doesn't distinguish slavery out of that? Who actually is very consistent in his inerrancy is John MacArthur. John MacArthur. And there's videos of him arguing for yeah. slavery. Yeah, Doug Wilson. He wants to remain consistent to the text. Like, I would use him if if you're going to go to a duel with this guy. I would use John MacArthur to support <laughs> your view. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not at all interested in debating anyone over inerrancy. In fact, I had a guy uh, today who responded to a, a tweet about going and avoiding meeting pastors for coffee because it's oftentimes an ambush. And he he responded was like. Um, I won't take advice from any pastor as pronouns in his bio. <laughs> and I, resp- <laughs> I, re- I responded back and I was like, I have a really low tolerance for, um, I have a really low tolerance for people who have a problem with people with pronouns in their bio. And he responds back and goes, well, I have a really low tolerance for people, for pastors who, who don't, uh, who don't hold to inerrancy. So uh, if you want to talk more about that, then why don't you DM me? And I responded, back, <laughs> I responded back and I was like, let me give you a little piece of advice. Um, I have no interest in talking to anybody about any topic, inerrancy or otherwise, who begins the conversation with, I have no, no respect for pastors who have pronouns in their bio. <laughs> yeah. It was like, no, I, I have known you for 10 seconds and I have enjoyed none of them. i'm I'm not going to have a conversation with you about inerrancy i I said i said stick around a while build a relationship (laughs) and uh then maybe but this ain't it dude (laughs) this ain't this ain't this ain't it (laughs) Well, uh, I don't. I don't care what you. I don't care what you think about inerrancy, and you certainly don't care what I think about inerrancy. You're just trying to convince me I'm wrong, and you build a relationship first, dude, and don't don't lead with the pronoun crap. Yeah, the pronoun stuff. I love that. I'm going to start using that line though. I've only known you for ten seconds, and I've enjoyed none of them. <laughs> 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 that's your next tweet <laughs> yeah i stole it from somebody else i saw it i saw it somewhere but it's <laughs> of course yeah yeah well so you I know made, i think i think I it started somebody was like um i no, i'm not going to take homework assignments from you because i've known you for 10 seconds and i've enjoyed none of them but people are you know like go and go and read this or or i really want uh, you to yeah. respond to, to this issue that i have with you doctrinally i love it i when just people met like- you i'm not you, I'm, I'm, I'm not required to answer your question i love it when people post their blog posts in the thread here read my blog post <laughs> Buy my book. I, I wrote a book on this topic <laughs> Don't be that. Don't be that. Don't be that dude. <laughs> yeah, I just laugh. Yeah, yeah, the pronouns in the bio thing. We need an episode on that. We just should. Yeah, we should. All the time. We, we should. Yeah. Well, it's and it, so I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the inerrancy crowd. He, you know, he said, uh, 
I, I don't want to give in to the way that people feel. He put feel in. Uh, well, in that's quotes. the thing. It, it's yeah. I mean, it is connected. All this stuff's connected, but um, yeah, it's like the woke. If you've had that in there, you think you're woke, and which that's a whole thing, man. That's a that's a soapbox I go on. Is like Jesus actually calls us to become woke, <laughs> to, yeah. to 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 really literally wake up to the reality, the spiritual truths in the world. To I just taught in our Bible study from John chapter nine, where Jesus like heals the guy, the blind guy, and. And he, and then he connects it to our spiritual like eyesight to be able to see yeah. spiritually th- truths in in our world. Like he literally wants us to wake up, but we're waking up. They don't want us to wake up to the truths of like social justice, injustice in our world, uh, on these on issues of sexuality and race, uh, because we know ultimately evangelicals, fundamentalists want white power, uh, straight people. They want to continue their their political dominance in the world, and so asking questions like we're doing today scares them. Uh, yeah, it challenges growth. the systems of authority. Yeah, um, which is really the issue. Um, and power. You know, I had somebody say to me the other day. You know, it was a, somebody who had walked away from their faith, an ex evangelical, and I said something about you know I'm I'm on the backside of deconstruction, and and you know I'm basically through or, or, or in reconstruction, you know, essentially. And I, I think I'll always kind of be in this deconstruction, reconstruction process just because that's who I am and how I want to be is somebody who's always asking questions and always refining what I think. But it was fascinating to me. She said, um, I wish that because she has essentially walked away from faith. Uh, she said, I wish that that could be my story. I suppose that people with privilege can have that outcome. And it fascinated me because I had never thought about the fact that because of my, maybe partially my station as, as just being white and a man in, in the American church, but also being a pastor and a leader, I have, I, I have this ability to navigate this in a way, and I have a lot of tools and resources and relationships that a lot of people just don't have the privilege of, of having. Uh, and that kind of that kind of wrecked me a little bit to say that you know at the end of the day these conversations about inerrancy and the church's need to really create space for people to have conversations and to question things and and to dialogue at least about what is and isn't literal even if we continue to hold to something that is inerrant or limited inerrant or literal creating that space because a lot of folks just simply do not have the space like you and I have to do that and to wrestle with those things. And so for them, it's they either buy it wholesale or they stop asking questions and, and give up on all of it. I don't think that any mm. pastor or church, even even the strongest inerrants, I, I don't think that they would want to, at the end of the day, have people leave faith over, over inerrancy. They might want people to subscribe to it. They might hope that people could come to it. But if we're not at least allowing people to answer the questions or to come to different conclusions that are within orthodoxy, we've got to allow other things to be within orthodoxy. It, you know, infallibility inspired. We've got to allow people to walk back it some and still be within the kingdom. If we don't allow that, it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're, we're literally pushing people intentionally out of the church and out of the kingdom. Um, yeah. And I... <laughs> 
there are a lot of things where I say I don't know where Jesus stands on that. I'm pretty sure I know where Jesus stands on this one. Um, it's 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 an abuse of the text and and the purpose of the Bible, and it's a diminishment of it. 